We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of The Formula on December 19th, 1980. It was written by Steve Shagan? Shagan, I'll say. Adapted from his own novel, directed by John G. Avildsen, and released by United Artists. Screenwriter Steve Shagan reportedly stumbled upon the idea for this story while researching his previous film, Voyage of the Damned. He learned at the U.S. Mission Documentation Center in Berlin that, though Hitler's oil supplies were bombed to shit by the Allied forces, they persevered with the help of a secret formula for synthetic oil, a formula which was suppressed or lost at the end of the war. Shagan basically played the lead character of the film, painstakingly tracking down every scientist involved in the project, some agreeing to speak on a condition of anonymity. Shagan put 22 drafts together for director John G. Avildsen. MGM made the deal for the movie when Shagan was still writing the book, hoping to strike a deal while the energy crisis was still a hot-button issue. Originally, actress Dominique Sandra was cast in the role of Lisa Spangler, but replaced after the first few days of production when George C. Scott literally couldn't understand a thing she was saying to him on set. I'm sorry, we, we're just going to gloss over it. I mean, you didn't gloss over it, you went, but we're not reacting to the fact that this was real? Yeah, it's a true story, essentially. <laughs> I mean, the detective thing is not. Yeah. Well, yeah. People weren't getting killed left and right. Sure. But it's a, it was a real formula. It's a real thing. I, I figured it had to be based in reality because of how dull a story it is otherwise. <laughs> um, because if it wasn't based on reality, then it's like, why did you pick a slightly easier to get fuel? <laughs> um, but yeah, George C. Scott couldn't understand this lady. She was still paid her $350,000 fee, though. Pay or play? Yep. The LA Times reported that actor Marlon Brando wore a facial altering bite plate, mm-hmm. yeah. a hearing aid, rimless glasses, and inserted plugs in his nose. He also sported a largely bald hairdo with random strands of gray hair and donned an ill-fitting three-piece suit for his role as a 75-year-old oil magnate. But, but if you we were talking about not being able to understand people well, his lisp is yes. like awful. Like not in a good way. It's like a bad Halloween costume like yes. appliance lisp. But this was his choice, right? <laughs> Correct. It's always his choice. He did the same <laughs> like with all the cotton in his mouth in the Godfather movies. Mm-hmm. The hearing aid, by the way, was also used to feed Brando his lines on set. <laughs> he apparently based the performance on Occidental Petroleum's Armand Hammer. By the way, funny story, Armand Hammer whose name is literally spelt Arm and Hammer, was not named after the baking soda company, nor was it named after him, though he did become a major stockholder of the company. <laughs> Where does okay. Army Hammer come into play? Armand Hammer is also the great-grandfather of actor Armand Hammer, yeah, who typically go. goes by Army. Wow. Screenwriter but Shagan... He, wait. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I'm still trying to process this. Yes. So Army Hammer. His great-grandfather is 
Armand Hammer. Armand Hammer. Okay. Armand Hammer. Who is who has a nothing stockholder to do in the company Armand Hammer, but, but has nothing it, to do with it. Neither of them was named after each other. Okay. Correct. And his name is Armand Hammer because his father was the founder of the United States Communist Party. And he named him after the okay, Arm Hammer. Okay, now you're bullshitting. I'm not. You are bullshitting. That's 100% real. Look it up. <laughs> That's a true thing. And the logo is also the same thing that basically inspired the Arm and Hammer logo. Wow. So this weird. Also weird. <laughs> Screenwriter Shagan was given the opportunity to supervise a re-edit of the film when he was very disappointed with Brando's rewriting of his entire scene. Brando was in turn disappointed with the re-edit and considers this to be his only for the money movie. <laughs> his only? That's what he said. How I think he was really excited creatively for the Superman appearance. Yeah. I uh, don't know that there's that much money in this movie. I mean, was this before The Freshman and Dr. Moreau? Uh, yes. That this quote? Yes. Okay. But uh, he also got paid the most of anyone in this movie. Of course. And he was only available for 11 days yeah, of shooting. in five seconds of this movie. And and him and George C. Scott are the only two who have ever like refused their Oscars? Right. That's correct. I thought that was an interesting that they were two men working together. But And this was after both of them had won the, those Oscars, right? Well, he got his for uh, Godfather. Right. And he got his for Patton, I think, right? Which was 70. Yeah. And Godfather was 72. But they just didn't want him? Uh, well, um, Marlon Brando, 72. Uh, Marlon Brando sent a Native American woman to accept the award on his behalf and give a speech about how Native Americans are portrayed on film. Uh-huh. And uh, people were obviously very upset about it because uh, Hollywood is gross. And so they were like, how dare you not just accept the award and be happy for us on this day where we all buy each other trophies. <laughs> and, uh, and But if you go back and watch the speech, it's really sad because she's just making really good points yeah. and she's reading booed, a speech yeah. that Brando gave her. She's getting booed off the stage. Oh. She didn't even get to make the whole speech. Oh. Hello. My name is Sasheen Littlefeather. I'm Apache, and I'm president of the National Native American Affirmative Image Committee. I'm representing Marlon Brando this evening, and he has asked me to tell you in a very long speech, which I cannot share with you presently because of time, but I will be glad to share with the press afterwards that he very regretfully cannot accept this very generous award. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry, excuse me, And I don't know the actual situation for George C. Scott's um, rejected Oscar, but uh, Brando also agreed to work for two free days if they could somehow force an anti-chlorine PSA into the plot. <laughs> because according to Brando, I think it's poison and people are swimming in it. <laughs> That's a true fact. I What you, a weird man. You know, when that scene came in the movie, I was like, oh my God, I hope this scene was completely unscripted. And just is just happening. Yeah, I, I want this scene to just be happening with Marlon Brando's madness. <laughs> and it basically was. Avildsen tried and failed to have his name removed from the credits. The film was nominated for four Razzies: Worst Picture, Worst Director, 
Worst Supporting Actor for Marlon Brando, and Worst Screenplay for Steve Shagan, and it was nominated for the Academy Award for Cinematography for James James Crabe. How do you go about losing the battle to have your name removed? It seems like that would be your choice. Well, you have to prove that for in in some way that the producers overrode your creative decisions mm. and changed the movie in a way that you didn't like. But the producers didn't do that. The screenwriter did with his permission. Mm. And so since it was too late to make additional changes, it went out the way that Steve Shagan re-edited it. Um, or at least part of it did. I guess they did two test screenings and the original and Steve Shagan's both tested well in different places. So they used the beginning of one and the ending of the other or something. It was very complicated. But the way that it ended up was not satisfying to Avildsen. But it was he had too much of a creative control over the film to officially take his name off of it. As we start the film, we get a lot of big names fading up and down in that Nazi font. We open picture in Germany, 1945, quickly approaching the end of World War II. Germans are firing massive cannons out of shelled out buildings at night. A herd of elephants stomps through the scene. We see a fancy car belonging to Nazi high command pulling up to a building decorated with eagles and swastikas. A general steps out and enters a fancy hotel. Inside, large paintings are being rushed out of the building before its presumed destruction. The general from the car is led upstairs to meet with Dr. Hans Lucien, director of Reich Research, Dr. Carl Sauer, director of Reich Armaments, and Dr. Abraham E. Sau, director of Reich Energy. Later, we will learn that this general is General Clayton, when the general informs these men that he served with the 56th Panzer Corps at Silo, Esau points out that Silo is only 26 kilometers from this room, and Clayton corrects him that it's 22 kilometers from this room. These men are still coming to terms with the war's end and realizing that the Soviets are literally on their doorstep. They're firing within earshot. The other doctors can hear the elephants trumpeting outside, and Clayton explains that the Russians have destroyed the local zoo. It's a veritable Jumanji out there. Another fancier-looking Nazi enters the room with orders from Himmler for the general. Evidently, Clayton has already been informed of the details. He will take a truck of secret documents to the Swiss frontier. Their last chance to survive is to trade their top secrets for American amnesty. This Nazi tries to make it sound like they are preserving the German nation in the face of the Soviets instead of just saving their own skin, and Clayton calls him out on it immediately. Clayton leaves for the Swiss border, but is intercepted along the way by a group of American soldiers. The Americans quickly realize what they've stumbled onto. The truck is loaded with top secret stuff. Chemical formations, diagrams of rockets, and the pictures of that goddamn plane with no propellers. It's wall to wall, Major. I tell you, I've never seen anything like it. The Major moves to speak with the General and offers him a cigarette. When Clayton compliments his lighter, the American hands it over as well. The Nazi says that he saw those kinds of lighters in North Africa at the Kazarine Pass, which is a battleground we saw earlier this year in the Big Red One, mm -hmm. where the tanks were running over soldiers in holes they dug. The Major tells the General they will ride back to headquarters together. He asks the General to tell him on the way what's in all those documents, and the General asks, why would I do that? And the Major explains, Because the war is over, General. And from now on, the world's going to be one big happy corporation. No more secrets, no more enemies. Just customers. We fade directly from these men leaving together 
to present-day Los Angeles, 1980, without any kind of a title card to indicate the yeah. Yeah. Uh, time travel. But it's obvious. Yeah, it, it's obvious. Um, but I brought this up on another film when, like, when you say instead of saying like so many years later or current year or present day, um, there, yeah, there's there's nothing. And although my note says present day question mark, yeah, uh, I mean we could just assume that it, it either is or could maybe be set in the 70s. Yeah, we but, don't really get a clear indication of that, think, other than her age. Right. I think that we probably could have done with this all cut out. Like, I didn't need any of this. At the very least, I would have just put 35 years later. No, no, no. I mean the whole yeah. beginning. No, I think the beginning is important. I don't. Well, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> we see George C. Scott as Barney Kane coming out of the Vagabond Theater. They've just left a revival screening of Edward G. Robinson in Little Caesar, a movie we mocked childishly when its title was referenced in Fade to Black earlier this year. Pizza, pizza. The Vagabond opened in the 50s and changed ownership in 85 before closing its doors in 93 to become an evangelical church for a while. From 2006 to 2014, it became the Hayworth Theater. And in late 2013, the entire building was sold to writer-producer Genji Kohan, creator of the Showtime series Weeds, as well as Netflix's Orange is the New Black. The theater now goes by the name dynasty typewriter and is a vaudeville slash comedy venue home to regular appearances by top name comedians like conan o'brien fred armison sashir zameda nick kroll and craig robinson the theater shows up again later in the 80s for the naked gun from the files of police squad when leslie nielsen and priscilla presley see platoon here yeah and they're walking out cackling and laughing (laughs) yeah the interior of the theater was used much later in la la land where emma stone's character mia performs her one woman show based on the snippet of the conversation between george c scott and his son it sounds like they planned on going bowling after the movie but their plans are dashed when sergeant lewis yosuda from the tactical squad introduces himself yosuda gives scott's character kane some rather blunt news approximately two hours ago tom nearly was shot to death Jesus the commissioner requested you head up the investigation. He says you knew Neely. Yeah, I knew him. Even though presumably his son heard this entire exchange, yeah. he still gives his dad a little passive-aggressive nudge when he breaks off the plans for the day. I'll try to make it by the house later. Sure. Take care, Dad. And then he's like, oh, this cop will give you a ride. And the kid's like, no, nah, it's fine. I'll just take the bus. I know you hate me. <laughs> it's like, my friend died. My friend got shot to death. Give me a break, kid. Also, that's his job. Yeah. Like, this can't be unusual. I can't tell if he's supposed to be, like, retired and being brought out of retirement for this investigation. No, no. I, okay. He, he, he's clearly active duty, but it's not – he's not on call for today. Because he seems like such a cranky old man cop that, like, yeah. does not give a shit about anyone's orders for the whole rest of the movie. I thought that he was, like – they just brought him back because he knew the guy best. Yasuda and Kane arrive at the crime scene, and Lieutenant Kane is climbing out of the car eight feet before it stops. As they are led into the house by Sergeant Rizzo, Kane introduces Sergeant Yasuda, but he says Yosuna and is gruffly corrected. Rizzo tells them that Neely's car is in the garage, but the Bentley out front belongs to Arthur Clements, whose chauffeur Herbert Glenn found the body. Kane instructs Yasuda to check the cars while he moves in to question the witness. Yosuda pulls him aside and complains that Kane has been disrespectful by getting his name wrong and telling him to check the cars without referring to him by his proper title, Sergeant Yosuda. What follows is a moment that I am one million percent sure inspired Quentin Tarantino. You're absolutely right. 
I should have said, uh, check the cars, Lois, or would you be good enough to check the cars, Sergeant Yosuda? But it's Sunday and I'm not with my son, and that bothers me, so you'll forgive my sudden lack of charm, okay? Okay. Good. Now check the fucking cars. <laughs> Which is pretty much spot on for Vincent Vega's confrontation with the wolf in Pulp Fiction. I don't mean disrespect, okay? I respect you. I just don't like people barking orders at me, that's all. If I'm curt with you, it's because time is a factor. I think fast, I talk fast, and I need you guys to act fast if you want to get out of this. So pretty please, with sugar on top, clean the fucking car. Like specifically that they both end with the fucking car. Yeah, <laughs> makes but me that's think... just Tarantino. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they both, it makes me think that he just had this floating around in his head or he just liked that moment so much that he wanted to reconstruct it sure. in some way. Kane enters the bedroom where they found Neely's body. He was shot seven times from his like throat down to his ankles. So it seems yeah. unprofessional. Yeah. Uh, odd coming out of uh, Little Caesar. One of the CSI guys tells Kane that they found two black hairs on the pillowcase and a voodoo doll with white powder stood on the corpse's chest. He also shares a newspaper page which Neely was able to scribble the letters G-E-N-E -E with his own blood before passing away. Kane moves about the house, first in the bathroom, off the bedroom. He seems to notice or recognize a scent on a towel hanging in the shower. At Neely's desk, there are two picture frames, but one of the frames is now empty. When he notices the scent on the towel, he full-on just buries his yeah. face into that towel. Yeah. It's like, uh... That's weird. <laughs> Who cares? A lot of your skin cells in this crime scene now. DNA wasn't a thing at that point. It was a thing. It just wasn't. Well, it wasn't a thing that they studied it. at crime scenes. That's not how humans reproduced <laughs> at the time. Yosuda enters with things he found in Neely's glove compartment, an American Express bill for a hotel stay at Hotel Kempinski, Berlin, on January 18th of this year, perhaps coincidentally the same day that Just Tell Me What You Want first hit theaters. He also finds a card for Club Venus, a gentleman's club in Hamburg, and a city map of West Berlin with the name Obermann written on it. To my untrained eyes, the word Obermann and the word Gene seem to be written in the same handwriting, but I don't know. I, I don't think he wrote Obermann with his fingers on this map. <laughs> and I don't think Obermann was in cursive, was it? I don't know. I think it was in not cursive. Either way, it looked <laughs> similar. The they were both very wasn't thick letters. Wasn't cursive either, though. It, it, it kind of was. It was kind of. It was cursive. like halfway to handwriting. It was a regular G, and then right, it, but then it, but the E N E was definitely a cursive. From Clement's car, Yasuda found a ticket to the Santa Anita racetrack. Kane speaks with Herbert Glenn, Clement's chauffeur. It seems the chauffeur came here on orders from Mr. Clement, and when he moved inside to collect Neely, he found his body. Mr. Glenn tells Kane that the plan for today was essentially an orgy. He was supposed to collect Tom and bring him back to Clement's place to do coke with women. He is obviously reluctant to divulge this information, but Lieutenant Kane convinces him that he has no right to remain silent, and the guy spills the beans. Hey, enough is enough, Lieutenant. I mean, I'm not up to any more answers now. I know my rights. Rights? Did you say rights? The court tells me that I have the right to be with my son today. You see me with my son? No. Please don't talk to me about rights. Nobody has any rights, only luck. And today, yours is as bad as mine. Only we're both better off than Tom Neely. Now, Tom Neely was a friend of mine, so don't get cute with me. I'm going to ask you once. Kane asks if Neely was seen 
with any particular women, and Glenn admits that he had a regular Asian-American hooker that he would see, only he uses a less acceptable term for Asian-American people. Kane uses the same unacceptable term to refer the chauffeur to his partner, and Kane tells Glenn that he and Yosuda are going to the girl's house in the morning. Before leaving the crime scene, Kane calls out Sergeant Rizzo for trying to steal a bunch of cigars from the dead man. A framed photograph of Neely's wife, or ex-wife I guess, Kay, reminds him that he needs to contact her about this murder. We cut to Kay's beach home as Kane and Yosuda are arriving. Kane asks Kay if she knows any of Tom's associates named Jean or Oberman. She says Jean doesn't sound familiar, but for Oberman she is clearly lying when she says no, she's never heard that name. Kane asks the last time she spoke with Neely, and she supposes about eight months ago, when he asks if she knows anything about the Germany trip, she lies again, averting her eyes. Now, I'm, I'm very unclear of the relationship between Kay and Tom Neely, because they're supposed to be divorced. But I mean, seem, they have separate homes, at least. Yeah, but they seem to, to still go places together because... Parties and... Yeah, they, yeah. They, they still like have a, a couple's kind of attitude towards each other that's interesting people can be friends after they divorce no (laughs) (laughs) movies and tv have shown me that is not the case she adjusts her story slightly to indicate that tom called her a couple of months ago for the holidays to announce a trip to rome she says that he told her arthur clements had opened important doors for him specifically to a man named adam stifle kane seems to recognize stifle's name as someone from the oil industry I don't understand why she's so forthcoming with some information and not other information. Because like, otherwise the scene's over here. But I know, yeah. but I feel like this happens repeatedly in this movie that people that want to hide things just tell him stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I also have a problem with a lot of the clues that are leading him from place to place, but we'll get into that also. But I, it, I guess it's just a requirement of this kind of story. Kay also denies any recollection of which picture was in the empty frame, Before he leaves, Kane lets Kay know that he thinks she's holding back information, and she gives him a hug as we cut to the press hounding the police for information on Neely's murder. The chief gives them the official summary of the case. Former Chief Neely, so this is the former chief of police that was the chief of police when he worked alongside Kane for some time. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the new chief is announcing... Are these things on? We're rolling. All right. I'll reiterate what I said before, but this is it, boys and girls. Now, this is all you're going to get. A former chief, Thomas Neely, was found shot to death early this morning. Now, Lieutenant Barney Kane has been named to head up the investigation by Commissioner Harris. Now, Tom Neely served this community for 30 years. His body's not even cold yet, so let's not destroy his memory in one night. That's all I've got to say. Kane says the gun was a 22 caliber and that Neely had just had sex before he died. Yosuda adds that the hairs found on the pillow were likely from a wig because they didn't respond to the tests that they did. When they talk over their questioning of Kay and bring up Adam Stifle's name with the chief, he tells them not to discuss Adam Stifle with the press. He's too important to be roped into this investigation. The chief takes it a step further and forbids Kane from talking to anyone without his express permission. So... Is the chief in on this? I don't really get it. I think the yes, chief is 100%. technically the chief is always in on it because the chief is working for the richest people in the town that he's providing for. I mean, I, I guess I get that idea, but 
I, I kept thinking that because of the, this stuff right here, we were going to come back to the chief being responsible for something, some sort of cover up. I don't, and I don't think, think he, we do. I don't think he has direct knowledge of anything that's going on with Stifle. He just knows Stifle gives me a lot of money every year. Yeah. I and, have to keep his name out of anything that comes up. And later on, uh, when he first goes to Germany, uh, the chief calls somebody to report this guy's mo- right. to report Kane's movements. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It just seems like he's trying to purposely keep tabs on him and screw him up and stuff and not let him solve this. Yeah. He's just trying to keep the the department out of trouble, which the department would be in if Stifle gets roped into anything. But after he tells Kane he's not allowed to speak to anyone without his permission, he says, We understand each other? We will in a minute. I'm going to say something because uh, you and I have never worked together and all you know about me is what you read in the file. There's only two things that matter to me, my son and my work. The rest of my life is an absolute zero. Now, apparently I've been assigned to this case because the Neelys knew my family and uh, Tom was very kind to me. He was a very good cop for a very long time. And whatever he became, he sure as hell paid the price for it. Which is what made me think that he was being called out of retirement because he hasn't worked with this chief of police for some Mm. reason. Oh, maybe. The chief again insists that they must leave Stifle out of it to protect the department, which Kane considers a confirmation that Stifle is paying the police department. The next day, he goes to Santa Anita to meet with Clements. He asks Clements if he knows where Neely's coke came from, and Clements points to a man named Frank Tedesco. Clements feels it necessary to point out that Neely never dealt the cocaine. He gave it away in exchange for being a part of this power structure. Clements admits to having put Neely in touch with Adam Stifle. He knew that Adam was looking for a man with Tom's background, specifically uh, police background, because he wanted to know how bribes are handled. <laughs> how does one bribe a police officer? I was going to say, no one knows better about bribes than the cops. Uh, that was that was their logic. <laughs> I mean, th- those are the people who bribes are proposed to the most, presumably. Clemens claims not to recognize the names Gene or Oberman. All he knows of the Germany trip is that Stifle is the one who sent Neely to Europe. Kane asks if Clements knows Kay Neely, and he says that he saw them at a holiday party at Tom's place, meaning that Kay was lying about the last time that she saw him. She said he called during the holidays. Right. That was her latest version. It turns out they saw each other in person. Kane heads to her house to follow up with her and finds the front door wide open, always a good sign. He moves through the empty house calling for her several times, finding a phone off the hook, a note that says, 2 p.m. Tedesco, above an article about Haiti. We see a picture of young Neely on a desk, and it's the major who intercepted the German general in our cold open. Get it? Cold because there was snow? Yeah, yeah. Eventually, he finds her shot to death in a blood-red jacuzzi on the back porch. It looks like bubbling pasta sauce. Yeah, that was this is our second dead person in a jacuzzi for the year, right? Uh, yeah, we never found the first one, I don't think, if you're talking about schizoid. Yeah. killed in a jacuzzi, though. I, I will I will admit that this reveal was like a oh fuck yeah <laughs> like I, I I knew she would be dead I didn't know how dead yeah it's not a binary thing this is super dead later that night Sergeant Yasuda arrives unannounced at Kane's apartment he has evidence to present firstly he confirms Kane's suspicion that both Kay and Neely were killed with the same Walther twenty two next he presents photographs of a distinctive wound on her leg that Kane recognizes as a calling card of a Middle East terrorist group. Kane tells Yasuda that he realizes now that the picture that was in the second empty frame was the one at Kay's place 
of a young Neely in uniform, he suggests Yasuda head to the Bureau of Military Personnel and find out everything he can on Neely's military file. If the reason they took this picture out of the frame was to avoid reminding Kane of his service record, how much more work would it have been to throw out the frame? Right. Or to take it with you to avoid reminding yeah. them that something is missing here. Right. Uh, or even leaving it is less of a reminder. Than an empty frame. <laughs> yes. The, the only thing I can think about uh, the, as a reason for taking the photo is that there may have been something inscribed or written on the back of the photo. Maybe, but still, but get never rid comes, of the frame. Yeah, it, it's. Yeah. I don't know if this is a proverbial red herring, but yeah. it sure as hell seems like it is. As Yasuda leaves, Kane also asks him to send a wire to Interpol to check on the name Frank Tedesco. We cut to Adam Stifle approaching a group of workmen in an oil field. He sets down a stopwatch and gives them 17 seconds to summarize the situation without an ounce of bullshit. One of the three workers, played by Craig T. Nelson, tells him the situation looks good. Well, it looks real good, Adam. There's no question this entire valley is sitting on top of a shelf of oil. The mountains are full of high-grade anthracite. A cop lets Stifle know that Barney is coming here to see him. Stifle seems even more familiar with Kane's resume than we are. He lets us in on the fact that Kane worked for the intelligence agencies before quitting to work in local law enforcement. Stifle starts the conversation by ranting about kids these days and pornography and everything that's wrong with America. He somehow blames the space program for Middle Eastern terrorists. Stifle admits to employing Neely to teach them standard police methods and aid them in the bribing of Middle Eastern officials to facilitate oil deals overseas. He says that it's much more common there, they have a word for it, and that it's like a generally accepted part of life there. It's called a bribe. Right. Say the same about here. It's a cognate. What? A cognate. A cognate? Yeah, it's a word that uh, is spelled and or pronounced the same and has the same meaning in different languages. Hmm. Interesting. Like taxi? Yeah. Kane asks when the last time Neely was asked to bribe these officials was, and he says that would be January. He took 500,000 francs from Zurich to Rome. Kane informs Stifle of Kane Neely's subsequent murder, and Stifle puts on a big show for him. Oh, God. Uh, oh, for God's sake. Well, well, it just makes me sick to hear that. I, I don't envy your profession, Mr. Kane. We see Kane and Yasuda watching a printer as all of Neely's service information is getting printed out. The last line of the file reads, files codenamed Genesis. We cut across town to the police precinct where Kane is arguing with the police chief in a room labeled 453 precinct coordinates though it seems like these words are written backwards on the door because they're being projected across the hall onto a wall and i can still read them left to right meaning that the words are labeling the hallway and not the room that they're coming out of unless somehow i'm getting the geography of this building wrong the police chief is freaking out because kane has apparently asked for permission to fly to germany to continue his investigation we get an aaron sorkin walk and talk as these two argue through the halls of the precinct, Kane is insisting that the female assassin was sent by Frank Tedesco and that none of this has to do with cocaine. Kane fills him in on the rest of the details, but the chief is pushing back real hard, suspiciously hard. Kane ends his argument by pointing out that Neely's last moments 
were spent trying to write the word Genesis in his own blood, and that must be an important part of this whole puzzle. The chief says that he'd be operating alone in the dark overseas, and Kane explains that the prefect of police in Berlin is a friend of his, Hans Lehmann. Eventually, Barney sells the chief on paying for the trip by pointing out that if I'm wrong, you wasted the money sending me to Germany. But if I'm right, then the former chief of police was not a coke dealer, that he was being framed, and the department is officially cleared of any wrongdoing. And so you can't say, oh, well, all the police are corrupt, because turned out that guy was okay. Yeah, we- I mean, it's a good argument. Yeah, but and it works. I also think just think it's weird to be like, yeah, go ahead, go to another country to investigate. We are totally allowed to do that. Yeah, <laughs> it's weird. We cut to Adam Stifle's mansion where he's fishing a frog out of a swimming pool with a net and lecturing his groundskeeper for overchlorinating the pool and hurting the wildlife. To be fair, he's right. Yes. We had a pool that was constantly filled with dead baby frogs. That was me. I was doing that. <laughs> Is it the, the chlorine they killed them or the fact that they couldn't get they out? They couldn't get out? I yeah. don't know. They would just get stuck. They would just be bloated baby frogs in the filter. <laughs> it's an amazing scene, though. On my first pass, I thought the joke here was that a guy who's like an oil tycoon cares about the wildlife of like mm-hmm. one frog in his swimming pool. But it turns out, no, he legitimately is worried about chlorine. <laughs> just Brando <laughs> is worried about it himself. And the frog is half dead. The frog is half dead. The frog is half dead. He's half dead from the chlorine. The chlorine is normal. The pH factor is 7.4. That's a perfect balance. I don't care what the pH factor is. I don't want you to put any chlorine in the pool. It's shit. I'm I've been doing up. this for 17 years. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Listen, uh, I, the frog is half dead. That's all you have to know. Don't put any chlorine in there. A man comes to speak with Stifle and tells him that OPEC is bringing prices down 20%, which means that they can start charging 12 cents more per gallon. Stifle is not a fan of this idea because he wants to keep the populace passive and always charging as much as you can get away with will lead to people machine gunning each other in gas lines, he says. Stifle suggests limiting the gas hike to seven cents and the man repeats that PR said people will pay 12 cents more and the Arabs will take all the blame. Arthur, you're missing the point. We are the Arabs. Late at night, we see Chief Nolan making a phone call to alert someone that Kane is on his way to Germany. In Berlin, Kane rides around in the back of a car alongside the Berlin Wall with his contact, Lehman. Lehman gives him the information on the hotel where Neely stayed in January. Apparently, he called the same number eight times in three days. It was the number for the power company, but their main point of contact was a man named Oberman. He informed Oberman of Neely's death and said that Kane will speak with him. That seems like you're taking a lot of initiative here. Yeah. I would have asked if you wanted to do this first. Well, they... They make it seem like a flight from the U.S., especially Los Angeles, uh, to Germany is just a, a few hours. It's just a few hours flight because yeah. he keeps telling people, "It's like, like, I'll you know, be there as soon as I land." It's like you mean like seventeen hours from now? <laughs> yeah. Wait, we we established earlier that the the Concorde is still happening there. Oh, that's so. true. Yeah, yeah I don't like think he's taking hours. a Concorde every trip here. <laughs> I don't. There's no way the chief would have signed off on that. Yeah. Sure, eighteen thousand dollars. There you go. Fly, flying into West Berlin. Yeah. That was something that I forgot when I was watching this movie. The, was that East and West Germany? Yeah, that thing? E- yeah, the East and West thing. I was yeah. just like, oh, yeah, that didn't fall until 85. Yeah, and, and the crazier thing is that Berlin is so far in East Germany. Yeah. Like, it, you know, in, in my head, I always had this as a kid. The Berlin Wall was literally just this wall that separated the two countries. But no, Berlin 
Berlin's smack dab in the middle of East Germany and surrounded by that wall. Yeah, because the wall like zigzagged around it. Yeah, because that was all part of that. The the, what, the Yalta, like you know, they the 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 French and the British and the Americans would divide up their section of Berlin. Yeah, and what a mess. <laughs> Did you uh, ever see the Third Man? Orson Welles and Jeff yeah, Dunn? I I I remember when I watched that movie, I had no idea that Orson Welles was in it until mm. he shows up, which yeah. is like. 45 minutes or an hour and yeah it's pretty late but i mean that's all about yeah the, the berlin but yeah so when lehman spoke with oberman he apparently denied any knowledge of the neelys and refused to have this interview with kane lehman helps kane check into a super cheap hotel and then makes him promise no action without lehman's permission because that worked so well last time mm-hmm. before he leaves lehman recalls that he received a telex from los angeles to inform kane that Arthur Clements and his chauffeur, Glenn, were killed in a car bomb in Bel Air. Kane looks around for someone to help him with his luggage up the stairs, but the man at the desk informs him that the bellman passed away a week ago. He, he also says that Clements was a prime suspect. and I, I, I got that impression from the line of questioning at the racetrack. Okay. That he at least suspected the guy. I wonder how long he's been telling people that the bellman died a week ago. It's like, we just don't have a bellman. <laughs> The elevator is also out of order. <laughs> right, and has been for a decade. In his hotel room, Kane receives a phone call from Oberman, fully prepared to discuss Tom Neely. It turns out he was just trying to avoid Lehman because he doesn't want to talk to the Berlin police, and it's already time for Kane to break his promise. Kane is invited to meet him at the Bamboo Bridge on the second floor aquarium of the Berlin Zoo at 5:50 p.m. Yeah, we are we are check off guns with the giant alligators yeah i was, I was like, pretty mad about it too. someone's gonna get thrown into this pit of alligators it's gonna be freaking awesome I'm, i have a note coming up at the zoo a pair of enormous alligators fight over meat under the bamboo bridge oberman joins kane on the bridge and i kept my fingers crossed for the rest of the scene that someone would get pushed over this railing oberman confirms that in january he met with neely multiple times and with Kay one of the times that they were together he says that he knew Neely from 1945 when they were captured by the British in World War II and put to work on a project with General Clayton codenamed Genesis. The Genesis project was a synthetic fuel formula that allowed for the production of gasoline from coal. The Genesis formula provided a synthetic gasoline with zero pollution somehow. As the zoo begins to close, they approach the exits and Oberman tells Kane that the American discovery of the Genesis formula would shift the balance of power from OPEC back to the United States. Oberman reveals that the chief scientist in charge of the project was Dr. Abraham Esau. Oberman insists that he must leave alone and they part ways. Kane is distracted by a photograph of the demolished zoo as it looked in the opening scenes of this film. When he finally leaves the zoo, moments later, he notices a child from a local church group seemingly terrified by something and follows the kid's gaze to the corpse of Oberman shot through the eye like Mo Green leaned against this statue outside the zoo. What What was a group of kids doing on a field trip this late at night? They were who, at the zoo until it closed. But who goes to the zoo at night? I mean, it wasn't that late. I think depending on the time of year, it looked really dark. But I think it was only like five or six that it was closing. Mm, I don't know. I remember he gave him a time, and it was yeah. like it was like yeah, five it was or six. it was. I think the zoo was was closing at six because he said to meet him at five fifty. Yeah, something there like you that. go. So they weren't there that late, and I and I honestly don't know that they it was a a a, a church group. I, they were led by nuns, but could it have been an orphanage. Could have been an orphanage, and this is just what you like, do. 
what are we going to do with these kids? Let's go to the zoo <laughs> again. Throw them into the alligator pit. Come on. Someone's <laughs> yeah, got to go into that alligator pit. That was the meat. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, more bullets are ricocheting off the steps around him, and Kane grabs the kid to duck behind a food truck for safety. We cut directly to Lehman being understandably pissed that Kane has already broken his promise several hours after he made it. He says that Oberman's next of kin will meet them at Oberman's apartment. As they sift through paperwork at Oberman's place, Lehman explains that Siebold was another scientist on the same Genesis project. So wait, sorry. Yeah. This this is where I got confused because I didn't go back and check because I forgot who sets up the meeting with the next of kin. They found her information in his wallet of his dead body. Okay, and they just assume that this person is related to him. Mm-hmm. Yes, it, that's what was indicated by the paper in his wallet. Okay. Just then, Miss Spangler, Oberman's niece, enters the apartment. She asks what business they had questioning her uncle before his death, and Kane tells her about the death of his friends. Really, the death of everyone he's interrogated so far, except for one guy <laughs> suspiciously. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, they found her name in Oberman's wallet. I'm assuming someone planted the wallet on the body after they shot him so that oh, it would that lead would them to her. Oh, that would make more sense. Okay. I was trying to figure out what the connection was. She tells them that her parents died when she was seven and that he had raised her like a father. They ask what she does for work, and she says she's a freelance model, which is already very suspicious in the spy <laughs> world. Uh, I'm not saying she isn't an attractive woman. I'm saying when someone tells you, oh, I fly all around the country and do all kinds yeah. of things, and there's no paper trail for any of it, then it's like, okay, you're murdering people. Kane Spoiler asks, alert. <clears throat> they spoil it in the next scene. <laughs> Kane asks if she knows what her uncle did during the war, and she seems to know the basics but not the name of the project. She does mention that recently a Swedish man got in touch with her uncle with an interest in something called Genesis. She says it frightened her uncle. The man's name was Tauber, a name that Kane had just recently found on a photograph in Oberman's apartment while they've been there. Again, I don't understand people's motivation in this movie to just keep giving this guy all this information. Not only that, but the the Tauber thing looked like you met him at the backstage of a theater production and he gave yeah. you a headshot and signed it. It was a very weird picture yeah. of another of a fellow scientist to have in your office. This whole thing is weird. I don't know why anybody tells him anything ever. Yeah. They ask her to identify a man in a picture with her uncle, and she says, yes, that's Professor Siebold. Before she leaves, they remind her that they may have additional questions, and this is when she finally chews them out for wasting her time in such a difficult situation. After she leaves, Kane asks, You think uh, you could get me some stills of modeling work? I suppose so. To what purpose? No purpose. I'm just a dirty old man who likes to look at pretty girls. It's an affliction that comes with age, Bonnie. And I would have thought that this was a joke. Like, I, like if if he had asked that to me, if I was the other guy in the apartment, mm-hmm. I would have been like, ah, funny stuff, you know, and moved on. I wouldn't yeah. have actually got them for him. Well, at the time, <laughs> yeah, horny old dudes would share pictures of ladies. I, I just It just sounded like a joke to me. I didn't think he'd follow through on it. It only sounds like a chauvinist joke to 2020 ears. I guess. In 1980, it's like... Yes, yeah, he wants I to jerk off to you. this lady. It's yeah. fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll get him. I I assumed that it was to either verify, or, I mean, I'm always, yeah, that's what I thought. Is that right. he wanted to make sure she actually was a model. But then you need to push. You need to push the joke further. The, just you get know. more graphic with your no, perversions. No, no, I'm just saying, like over the top. It's like you know that is you need to push the sarcasm over if it's a legit ask. Yeah, and or you need to 
say, or oh, no, up I'm, with, no, just kidding. I'd actually I need just need pictures. to verify these yeah. things. Yeah. <laughs> no. Kane promises Lehman again that he won't go anywhere or speak to anyone without at the very least telling Lehman first, and they shake on it this time. Now that they have an official deal, Kane hands over a letter from Tauber that he found on Oberman's body, and he asks Lehman to make a photocopy for him. Lehman also mentions that he was having dinner with someone from his intelligence agency recently, and she informed him that the name Tedesco is also the Italian word for German. I don't understand this. <laughs> well, the guy's name is Frank Tedesco, which technically means French German. <laughs> <laughs> Why do they make pasta? But I, but it's actually his name, though, right? No, or, no, it's a code name. It's a yeah, code it's a code name. name. Okay, but it's a it's a reference to him being German from World War II. That's why they. That's why he chose Tedesco. Next, we get a scene that I might have omitted. Yeah, Oberman's niece Lisa is in an apartment with a man named Dieter, and he's giving her all the orders. First, you will have to find a way to accompany this American Kane. Second, you will lead him to Seabolt. Third, you will report everything. Please, Dieter. I'm not new in this. Dieter mentions that these orders were passed along directly by Tedesco. Lisa seems especially depressed about something, but I'm not sure what since we basically revealed that she's a spy and not related to Oberman at all. Yeah. I don't know why she's like on the verge of tears at her desk. And I like that it's her job to get a job to accompany him and he just immediately asks her yeah, to accompany him. Yeah, the next me. morning he's like, oh, you want to come with me on a bunch of trips? She's like, oh, 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 yes, lovely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Oh, yeah, that's lovely. Lisa and Kane speak the next day. Turns out he reached out to her, in part to pay his respects, but mostly because he needs a fluent German speaker who is not affiliated with the police. It reminded me of the first Deadly Sin when he enlists the poor widowed woman to do all of his research yeah. for the investigation. <laughs> who was the other person that was, that was working The with guy him? from the museum. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my this God. This is literally the only other German speaker you know that isn't a cop. Nobody else could have done this for you that didn't just lose a loved one. And, and, and does he ever specifically need someone who only speaks German? I think everyone I else speaks yeah, English the whole time. He comes time. across, yeah. Every, yeah, everybody speaks English. <laughs> she agrees to go to Zielendorf with him to translate some documents. That's the reason oh, that he yeah, needs yeah, her. Yeah. They do You're documents right. first. The docs. Dieter is watching this entire conversation, and we cut right to them reading the documents in a library. They find Clayton's file and learn that he was badly burned and wounded before his transfer to the Genesis Project. Kane seems certain that the only reason Neely would have gone to Hamburg would be to meet with Siebold, so he must still be around. Siebold must be alive and in Hamburg somewhere. When they leave the archives, Kane brings up something that bothered him. Earlier, Lisa called Neely Major Neely, despite not being familiar with his military records, but she explains that her uncle always called him that, and he seems to buy this. Apparently, he has asked her to come to Hamburg as well for this meeting with Siebold, which, as we described, is entirely in english and it's not necessary for her yeah. to come along but maybe they didn't know that at the time kane assumes that since he's known her since childhood that siebold will be more relaxed with her around we cut right to professor siebold's office and they're already chatting right away something's off because siebold seems to have advanced knowledge of lisa's cover story so we're already getting the impression anything that's being said here is already a lie because he's agreeing with her he sympathizes with her having lost the man she considered a mother and a father. Siebold says that he's not spoken with Neely, but Tauber did contact him about getting the Genesis band back together, not the Phil Collins Genesis band, the other Genesis band. 
that makes gas. Siebold says he refused Tauber's request for a meeting. In full swing in the 40s, Siebold was able to oversee the production of 7 million tons of synthetic fuel and received an award from Albert Speer. Siebold says that all he did was coordinate, but Dr. Abraham Esau is the one who formulated the catalyst that made it all possible. Siebold says he didn't know where to find Esau, but he had an adjutant, I don't know what that is, an assistant maybe, an adjutant named Remick, who works in a strip club across the lake. That wouldn't be the Club Venus by any chance, would it? I have no idea. Yes, you do. You sent Tom Neely there in January. We found a souvenir of the club in Neely's house. Why did you lie to me about seeing Neely? Siebold loses his patience about being called out here. Embarrassed at the work he did for the Nazis, he tries to turn the guilt around on Kane, but he makes a very weak argument. He says that in all the American bombings in Europe, they specifically avoided hitting the oil production plants that Americans owned patents on because they wanted to protect their own investments. The Americans were in business with the Third Reich then, and the same partnership exists today. There is blood on your hands too, mister. Siebold pretends that this makes them basically equal, even though Siebold was instrumental in the war effort and Kane was a child in 1944. <laughs> Kane and Lisa leave and Siebold moves to a window to rehang his award and in keeping with the pattern is immediately shot through the head. Yeah, I really wanted the scene outside to be Kane and Lisa walking. Oh, Lisa, go, oh, hold on, hold on one second. I forgot something. <laughs> oh, I left my purse. And she just turns around and shoots through the window. <laughs> Isn't it like a stained glass window, though? Yeah. And I'm like, how does anybody aim? There's no way you could tell somebody, who was standing yes. there. Mm-hmm. Even if you could see a head at all, you couldn't tell who it is. No, it's it's <laughs> cartoony the way these people are dying the second he leaves. We cut to Club Venus, where strippers are dancing in front of newsreel footage of Hitler. Remick is disturbing. Yeah, it's really this, weird. They're, they're not just dancing in front of it. They're like dressed up like... SS soldiers like they got they have the swastikas on their nipples yeah they literally have swastikas <laughs> yeah. on their nipples yeah. yeah it's it's disturbing i'm laughing out of awkwardness yeah <laughs> I, I, I want you to know because it's so absurd no. it is so absurd i mean like oh god i just don't understand yeah. who is who is the target audience of this strippers it's, it's dressed like, like ss soldiers you know it's it's the closet nazis that are left that are left over in the country. And, and they're like just super into that. That gets them hard. Okay. Remick at the club tells Kane that Esau is dying at a place called the Kessinger House. Dieter is sitting at the bar listening in. During their chat, Lisa is watching the dancers and having disturbing flashbacks to her childhood during the war. She's in a building. <laughs> a lot of strippers in her childhood. Yeah. <laughs> they were big in Nazi Germany. Uh, she's in a building where Nazis are removing gold teeth from the bodies of dead jews and they're filling jars with gold teeth that they stole our, which, our second giant g- yeah gold collection of, of gold of teeth. nazi gold teeth Ugh. um after death ship suddenly she's waking up from a similar nightmare and kane comes in to check on her he tells her about a nightmare he often has he's in santiago chile having lunch with a friend who was connected to allende who if you're not familiar Salvador Allende was the democratically elected socialist president of Chile, later deposed by the Chilean military in association with the American government because he was nationalizing the private sector and American corporations had almost a billion dollars in corporate holdings there. 
fascist dictator Augusto Pinochet was installed in his place. Kane says that after his lunch with the Allende connection, the man was shot to death, and Lisa asks if he knew this would happen in advance, and he admits he did. Kane was told that this man would help coordinate stopping the flow of copper to the U.S., but later learned it was all a scam perpetuated by the CIA, and he resigned as a result. Lisa admits that their nightmares are similar. He stands to leave, and she asks him to stay with her for the night. We cut to a train pulling through snowy mountains. Kane tells Lisa that Lehman spoke with Esau, and he agreed to a meeting immediately, but it all sounds too convenient to him. That kind of obedience is perfectly normal and very German. She tells Kane how bothered she was by the Hitler footage at the strip club and that she couldn't be alone last night. And all this time, I thought she was just a pushover for a pretty face. <laughs> Kane and Lisa are let into Esau's office, and he starts by ranting about nuclear reactor projects between France and Iraq. Then he whines about how embarrassing it was when the Mongols raided the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute to capture him at the end of the war. They kept flushing my toilet over and over. Can you believe the German nation defeated by men who have never seen a toilet? He says they kept him prisoner to recreate the formula, but he kept sabotaging it until they sent him to prison. He then confesses Himmler's plan to trade the formula and other top secret developments in exchange for amnesty, Unfortunately for them, the shipment was intercepted by American army units. Esau has a coughing fit and is clearly on the verge of death, but I still want him to get shot in the head at the end of this scene. Esau makes Lisa leave the room before divulging everything he knows about the ongoing plot to suppress the formula. It turns out that as much as he cares for Germany and maintaining their secrets, he also cares a lot about himself and his own legacy, and he wants people to know historically of his brilliance so he offers to scribble down the Genesis formula for Cain because he's not affiliated with his government and has all the proper motives to make this formula public. We cut to Cain on the phone in his room at night. He's asking an operator to reconnect a call that he just dropped. The operator tells him that the call wasn't dropped, it was intentionally cut to deliver a message from Dr. Tauber. He wants to meet Cain where the horses race on ice. We cut to the next day as horses are raced through snow. It's actually a frozen lake that they're racing on. That seems dumb. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Considering how easy it is to kill a horse in general. Yeah, just breaking their legs. Looking at you, Santa Anita racetrack. The beginning of their exchange is odd. I, by Santa Anita, I'm talking specifically about the show Luck from uh, the creator of Deadwood, where they killed like five horses in the first two episodes, and they were like, show's over. They just shut the whole thing down. Oh, it doesn't take the luck show to kill horses. They've been right. killing tons of horses. But there that since was then. they were specifically shooting that show on the Santa Anita racetrack. Yeah. The beginning of their exchange is odd. Tauber says that the Swiss are famous for their horses, and then Kane says, "That's interesting. I always thought the Swiss were famous for their uh, chocolate." <laughs> That's quite true. <laughs> you okay, Favon? At first, I assumed that this was poisoned or something, yeah. and that he was baiting Kane into mentioning chocolate by calling Swiss horses famous so that Kane would think that he was incepted and it was his own <laughs> idea to mention chocolate. Either way, Kane pockets the chocolate coin and just walks away. They don't even have a conversation. Yep, that's it. I don't understand what happened in this scene. It other was than a bribe. It was a bribe of chocolate <laughs> Take to this one coin. coin. Take this chocolate coin and go away. In, in Switzerland, <laughs> chocolate coins are the currency. <laughs> I am confident that there was something communicated in this scene that I completely missed. Because I don't, I don't know what happened here. 
We see Tauber fiddle with the remaining coins in his hand after Kane leaves. At a post office later, we see Kane mailing a copy of the formula to Sergeant Yasuda. Later, we see him in a hotel lobby being offered chocolate by a woman and slipping her another envelope in exchange. I don't know who this woman is, but he's given yep. a second copy to her now as he's taking chocolate. And was he also that was a, the hotel lobby? Because for some reason well, I was that, like, that's, like, that's a like a chocolatier. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe it's just a chocolate shop. But either way, we move from there to the hotel lobby where he has a third copy of it. And, yeah, and a safe deposit box. Right. Um, and that's in the hotel lobby. So he stores the third copy in a safe deposit box. And on his way out of the bank or wherever this uh, deposit box is, I guess it's a hotel, uh, he asks an employee somewhat unnecessarily for the English translation of the word orchidae, which it turns out is orchid. What Another cognate. <laughs> <laughs> Again, Dieter hears all of this and speaks to the safe deposit guy in German after Kane leaves. So we don't get to hear what this conversation is. But presumably it's like, can you open the box that the man just put the copy in? Back at his apartment, Kane is drinking, depressed, and Lisa asks what's wrong. He tells her that he's getting too old for this work. He laments getting slower, putting clues together in his old age. And he compliments her sharpness. He recalls how quickly she covered for herself, calling Neely Major Neely earlier. And, of course, she tries to deny what he's suggesting here. I assumed that the twist was going to be that he wasn't a major when he worked with her uncle. Mm. And so that's why it was wrong. Well, because he also has her modeling photographs. Yeah. Right, which and, he got from Lehman eventually. And, and so it was like, so something triggered him to have this moment of clarity. Well, he, he says what it is. He says he got these photos and he saw the black wig in the modeling shoot and mm -hmm. he remembered that there were black wig hairs at the murder scene. What's so dumb? Like yeah. a gazillion people could have black right. but, wigs. But that was just the first thought where he's like, oh shit, I'm looking for someone wearing a black wig and she wears one professionally. And then he was like, are there other clues I missed thinking back in his head? And then what sold it for him was the additional detail that she uses orchid scented body oil which she just came out of the shower to come mm -hmm. speak with him. So she's probably got it on okay. her now, and he smelled it in that towel in Neely's bathroom. Well, they, they've also been very close. Right. Uh, so I'm sure he smelled it other times. Yeah. But why did he need that translated? <laughs> yeah, I don't know why he needed it. He could have just said, that body oil, whatever it is. I don't know. Because I'm too that lazy to figure out what... That lady smell of yours. Yeah. I've smelled it I don't it know what orchid and then extra letters means in English. <laughs> But honestly, using a scented body oil at the scene of a murder seems like a weird slip-up for a professional spy, too. Mm -hmm. Just leave butt prints all over the place, too. What? I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how prints work. <laughs> you use your butt for everything so you don't leave can fingerprints. You dust for butt prints? <laughs> you can dust for anything. It's like, I need, I'm sorry, ma'am, I need to take a, a print of your butt. I need to compare it to this crime scene. I never heard of that. Yeah, we're doing it all over the place now. Can you get your tits out too? <laughs> Can you just sit on top of this photocopier for us, please? <laughs> this looks like your lap. It's a photocopier. The part she could never explain her way out of is his recent discovery that Paul Oberman had no sister and thus no niece. Again, seems like a very clumsy backstory for a spy who knew so much about Oberman. She couldn't have been a second cousin or something right? or just like a friend, like literally like be a girlfriend or something yeah. like a much younger girlfriend, whatever, something further down the line. She seems to admit some of this and not the rest of it. She claims that she didn't actually kill Neely, but she did sleep with him. Like she was there to sleep with him and then someone else killed him. I guess. I 
And then she says that she wasn't sleeping with Kane on orders from anyone, that she was just supposed to accompany him. Yeah, I wasn't sure they slept together until she said that, and then yeah. that grossed me out. Yeah. She fills him in on her backstory, presumably the real one this time, though. I don't know why he would bother listening to a second story from a confirmed spy. She tells him that her dad led a concentration camp, so I guess you wouldn't you wouldn't make that up. <laughs> you wouldn't be like, oh, what? yeah, well, my dad's a Nazi, <laughs> unless it was true, because why bother? Uh, at the end of the war, he stole the gold teeth of dead Jewish prisoners and used them to pay his way into the new German high society after the war. That's got to be a lot of teeth. Well, I mean, one gold bullion is like a quarter million dollars. So that's like four jars of teeth. That's not that much. She says when she learned what he did, that she despised him and that she blamed herself. Kane counters that she wasn't even born and shouldn't blame herself, but we saw a flashback of her standing next to the jars of teeth. Yeah. So she was at least born. In college, she joined forces with a radical terrorist group in Germany, bent on rectifying the mistakes from the war, and she found violence to be the only way to force revolution. Kane points out the obvious fact that murder is murder, regardless of who's ordering it, and she seems to admit that she learned that eventually the same way he did in Chile. He asks Lisa why the Neelys were killed, and she says that it was her mission to determine if they'd spoken with Tauber. She doesn't say whether they had, or why she needed to find that out. But she admits that her orders to accompany him came from Frank Tedesco specifically. He wants a meeting with Tedesco, and she agrees to set it up on the condition that he promises not to act on this meeting, that they're just going to have a conversation and you won't try to attack him. You're promising me that. We cut right to a Checkpoint Charlie-looking location in Berlin where Tedesco has shown up for the meeting. Two cars are parked on opposite sides of the line dividing East and West Berlin, Lisa and Kane approach from one side, and Tedesco stands on the opposite side. Kane is stuck on this side, because if he goes over the line, he's out of the protection of the Berlin police, and his friend Lehman can't do anything about it. Well, can't he just step back over the line? Not, if they, not if they take him on the other side. But, there, but there's, like, no guards. There are guards. I think there's... But, but, there, but I mean, there's no guards right there where they are. They're, they're there's a watchtower, though. There's watchtowers all along the wall. Yeah, but he could go over the line and, and just come get back. Shot. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and then he would be prosecuted for having crossed over into the other side. He would get in trouble for it. He, it's out of his jurisdiction, is his point. As Frank Tedesco approaches the line, he is slowly entering a shaft of light, and we can see his face is an older, badly burned version of General Clayton's face from 1945. Uh, from the beginning of the film. I think it's the same actor playing him from earlier. Tedesco says that he met Neely in 45 and brought the formula with him to the British intelligence in Hamburg, where they connected with Oberman. Tedesco says that apparently the Americans were not interested in the technology. Don't you find that curious? After all, you've once of war, fellows. Well, don't worry about it. We're famous for losing the wars we win. And let me tell you something, you son of a bitch. Verstanzi, son of a bitch. I know you had Tom and Kay nearly killed, and if it takes me the rest of my life, I'm going to see that you pay for it. Tedesco suggests that Kane has no cause to be upset because the men who killed the Neelys are already dead, and he has the formula. There's nothing else to win. As he slowly returns to the car, Lisa pulls a gun from her trench coat and shoots Tedesco four times. Lehman pulls Kane back before he can cross the line to help Lisa, and Lisa calmly heads to her captors, basically surrendering herself. 
I'm so lost at this point. I, again, <laughs> this, is, this, this, was, this was to my point. All Lisa had to do was walk back over that line again. Because all the guards in the, in the watchtowers, no one's, no one's opening fire. No one's doing anything about this. But I think it becomes an international incident if she crosses that line back over to the other side. Because then suddenly they have to coordinate like the return of this captive. Mm-hmm. Whereas now it's just someone committed a crime on our side. She's going to be prosecuted for it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so confused about this whole Tedesco part. Like, what what part of it confuses you? I so I thought she was working for an anti-Nazi group. She was at one point, but that involved Tedesco, who was a Nazi. Right, because he's posing as a non-Nazi. She worked for a spy group that she thought were good guys, but were just different bad guys. No, they're the same bad guys. They're they're the guys that she's fighting. I don't. That's why I'm so confused. I'm like, she didn't. What and what was their motivation? They wanted the formula. What do they want? They want to be the only people with the formula. And who are they? <laughs> uh, leftover Nazis. But they don't want America to get it because that would throw off the balance of power globally, and they don't want the Swiss to have it because. They also have a lot of coal. They don't want any country that's rich in coal to have their technology for turning coal into gasoline. What's weird about this whole thing is that the guy who had the formula seemed pretty easily accessible. Yeah. This whole yeah, time. Yeah, they, ju- they, they just cut to in his office as yeah. he's walking and across he goes, well, I'm going to write down the formula for you. It's like, couldn't... Who should I make this out to? Yeah, it's like, why didn't anyone else come and grab this well, guy? Well, anybody else couldn't have done it because the whole point that he made was that the only reason I'm bothering to give this to you is because you're not affiliated with either government. Mm. Um, and, and you have motivation to just share it with the whole world. Right. Yeah. At the airport on his way out of the country, Kane tries to put a call through to Yasuda and hands one more copy of the Genesis formula to Officer Lehman. He's just handing these things out like cookies. Yeah. Or Swiss chocolates. Ah. Luckily for both of them, Lehman opens it and immediately inspects the formula. The woman on the phone tells Kane that Yosuda's number is out of service. Turns out, somewhere along the line, all these formulas were swapped out for geometric equations. And Lehman's mm-hmm. like, yeah, look at this stuff. This is high school math that you are that you just handed Did me. Did you really think the formula started with Y equals MX plus B? Yeah. <laughs> of course. The quadratic formula. No. That's uh, the slope intercept. <laughs> ah. Math. Forget it instantly. <laughs> You'll never, never touch it again. It. To be fair, I've used math once. <laughs> <laughs> Counting how many times I used math. How old are the kids? Just well, now. they were born in. <laughs> Let's see. No, it no, doesn't no. matter. I'll ask them at a certain age. I mean, I used my high school math skills once. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't use them often. But I had to calculate like compound curves of like this donut shape. I was trying to wrap a fountain in felt for trolls release. Right, but you googled <laughs> all these formulas. I did Google the yeah. formulas, and yeah. <laughs> and you only have to remember your kids' ages up to five, and then that's their job. <laughs> After that, you can ask them how old they are. But they always measure it in halves or quarters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or they just lie. At least it's not like when you I'm have 12. To, <laughs> no, you're not. You used to have to remember how many months old they are. And I'm like, I don't even remember if I've showered like this week. How can I remember how many months old this baby is? <laughs> but yes, she's 12. 12 months? Is there a word for that? <laughs> <laughs> 
Kane realizes that his copy and Lehman's copy both look like this math homework, and he puts in an emergency call to the LAPD. He realizes that the concierge at the hotel must have swapped out the formula, and that someone thought ahead to intercept Yosuda with the last original copy. So I think what happened is he had five copies total. He gave one to Yasuda. Mm-hmm. He gave the second one to the Swiss yeah, through Calvary. that chocolate store. Yeah. He gave a third one and put it in the post office box. He gave this fourth one now to um, Lehman. Actually, no, there were four copies. He gave the fourth one to Lehman and he had the one from the post office box. Right. Or not post office box. The, the hotel security box, box, yeah. But how many of them got switched out? All of them? None of them. No, one two of them all. got switched out. Two the one them. that he had and the one that Lehman had were swapped mm. out. But Yasuda's was in the mail the whole time, so no one could grab it. Ah. And he'd already handed off the one to the lady and at the chocolate store. And nobody knew about store. the Swiss one. Right, yeah. exactly. On the phone with the LAPD, he tells them the whole story and that Yasuda is in danger and to please head to his house immediately in Pasadena. When he lands in Los Angeles, he is quickly brought up to speed. Yosuda is MIA, and his wife was bound and gagged at home. Based on Yosuda's logbook, Kane is able to determine that the formula was placed in the safe in the vault back at the police station before he was captured. Kane heads directly to Adam Stifle's office for the climactic showdown. Well, and, and that's what, what troubled me, too, was he says that Yosuda would have put it in the in the vault, but the chief of police is in on this whole thing. So I don't could, know that he is. I don't think he... Yeah, that's why I was asking at the beginning. What well, does then, the then chi- who did he call? He called Stifle and said he's... So This, this guy he thinks st- you're a suspect and he's going to Germany, so you would, know. Wouldn't he call Stifle and saying, hey, we got a letter from the guy he doesn't in Germany? Know. It went directly it went, to Yasuda yeah. and Yasuda put it directly in the safe. The chief of police has no idea that letter came. It just seems like he would at least have some information. Well, somebody, I think Yosuda but somebody, knows better than to but tell But who anyone. knew it was going to Yosuda at all? The only person who knew was Yosuda, who got it personally delivered to him, which he knew meant this is extremely secret. Then how do they know to but abduct But that's what Yosuda? I'm saying. How do they know to abduct him? Lisa saw him send send the letter out. But Lisa's not on the same side as the oil she works dummies. For, she worked for Tedesco. <laughs> she didn't change her mind until the last night before she killed Tedesco. And Tedesco's on the same side as the these oil, oil barons. I thought he was against the Americans getting it. He is. The Americans already have it. They don't want it to go public. The Americans have it. The Americans already have it. Even, even before the letter to Yasuda. The Americans had it in '45. They didn't care about it. Oh, they've buried it because they want to make money on the oil. They're they they want to make money on it later. So it, that that part I understood. Uh, yeah, the, the, but the, the Germans don't want this information to be public. The only German who wants this information to be public is Esau because he came up with it right, and he right, wants right, everyone right. to know he's a genius. But everybody else is fighting to keep it secret. They're all joined in that effort because they all want to make a lot of money off of it eventually. Yeah, the, they, they want to wait till the oil runs out and right. then they'll switch to coal. Okay. Because then they'll be the new OPEC. It'll be Germany, the Swiss, and the Americans. Okay. All right. That's why when, before they kill Siebel, he says that the Americans and the Germans were in an agreement then and they're still in an agreement now. Okay. Because well, his point is that this is a partnership that's lasted through World yeah, War II. Yeah, yeah. But with all these bodies, why is Yasuda still alive? Uh, because they're holding him hostage. Because they assume that he's got the letter so somewhere. If, if they would have killed him it. if they found the letter with mm. him. But since they didn't find it, they just have him and all they can do is get him to trade the right. information. 
which is again why I think the chief of police would have at least some inkling of where the letter would be if it's in the safe at the police station. Why would he know that? Because he works for Stifle. If they know, right? Who does? The chief of police? Yeah. Yeah, he works for Stifle. Why and would he know everything that happens in the entire police building? Because he knows they they somehow they knew to get Yasuda. Right. Who who told someone to get Yasuda? In in the timeline, Yosuda got this message mm-hmm. directly from a carrier. Okay. And he took it to the police station and put it in the safe like yeah. 4 a.m. in the morning. Yes, but somebody abducted him. Who told somebody to abduct him? Whoever was connected to Lisa said, go abduct Yosuda. Right, but in theory, they would also tell Stifle that or no? But unless he tells them, I put that thing in the safe, there's no way they would be able to find that out, is my point. He put the formula in the safe no, before, no, I'm they, with, I'm before with you, they abducted I'm with him. you on that point. The, the, the I don't know which chief, part's confusing. The chief of police. I'm confused about who took Yosuda. <laughs> Stifle's people took Yosuda. Right. So that means that the Germans called Stifle to say, hey, get Yosuda. So yeah. in the, theory, Someone Stifle, said the formula got out. It's getting mailed to Yosuda. Right, they got as, there too late. Right. He'd already put it I'm in the safe. I'm just saying, as Stifle, I would say... Hey, guy that works for me, chief of police, what's your procedure if you got something? What's your procedure if you assume I don't know that something? this is standard procedure. I think he got it in the mail. And because it wasn't directed to the police station, it was directed specifically to Yasuda. He knew it was important. He didn't have anywhere at his home that was safe enough. So he brought it to the police station and put it somewhere where they wouldn't find it. Okay. Because he knew that this was something that he didn't trust the chief of police with or he would have sent it to the chief of police. Sure. Okay. That's my reading on this. So Kane meets with Adam Stifle in his office. And when he opens the door, Stifle is like hiding behind a plant in his own office. Like <laughs> he looks like he's already being suspicious. Um, but I'm sure he's just watering it. Uh, Kane has brought with him the original uh, from the safe at Tactical. And he demands Yosuda's release in exchange for it. Stifle plays dumb for a second, but eventually takes the formula from Kane and flips through it to verify that this is the real deal. For some reason, Stifle takes Kane's word that this is the only copy, and maybe it is, which would be the dumbest, that they didn't make a copy of it before he went off to Stifle. Because the only reason that Esau gave it to you was so that you would make it public, and Mm -hmm. now you're just setting it on fire, and Esau's going to die in a hospital in Germany. Eventually, Stifle makes the call, demanding that Yasuda is released. Kane passes along the message to Yasuda, that he needs to head directly to John Nolan's office, the current chief of police, and wait there for a call from Kane. Kane asks for some explanation of what's been going on the last 35 years, and when Stifle launches into it, his dialogue is almost completely incoherent because of these false teeth or whatever else he's wearing that are making him lisp and slurp all of his words. I think you deserve some answers. I'll give you the 98-cent tour. Since World War II, we've been concerned with the continued existence of some surviving German scientists who were, well, they played a key part in the development of the Genesis formula. Turns out they've been keeping the formula under wraps to give them time to buy up all the coal fields in the United States. Right now they own like 70% of them, and their goal is to own all of them by the time OPEC runs out of oil so that they can just turn around and say, we make gas now and sell that to the American people. I'm not sure I understand the next turn this conversation takes. It sounds like Neely's death was orchestrated to drive Kane to Europe in pursuit of the truth, giving Stifle the opportunity to follow him 
from Genesis member to Genesis member and kill the whole team. Like they literally used his detective skills mm -hmm. to find anyone who could recreate this formula and murder them one by one. To flush them out, oh, I guess. Okay. Yeah, I didn't follow any of this, so I'm glad you I, I that's that's what I think is going on here. But it also seemed again, all these people were not really in hiding. Well, and like I said, everybody he interviews gives him shit tons of information. Yeah. They're all just like, oh, by the way, blah, 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 blah. They could have just as easily sent him blah, blah, directly blah, blah, blah. to Esau and said, ask Esau for the formula. He'll write it down for you because your friend died and he feels bad. Yeah, I just, I mean, everybody was very, very willing to give him information. Yeah, as long as the local cops weren't involved. They didn't care about LAPD. Stifle sees that Kane has put the entire plot together, but insists still that he's not an evil person, that he's acting with 100% rationality. Look, the sole function of any international cartel is to ensure political harmony. The first obligation of power is to lead. Now that's been the holy grail since the Industrial Revolution. He mentions that nowadays, insanity is a bigger threat than starvation, and that people want desperately for someone else to lead them. And he's taken up that role reluctantly, or so he claims. Kane guesses that Stifle's intention is to wait until it doesn't make sense not to employ the formula and then charge the taxpayers 40 to $50 million in R&D budget to come up with a formula that he's had the whole time. Kane calls Nolan's office to speak with Yasuda now. Apparently he's there and everything's fine, and Nolan's office is close enough that Yasuda can just deliver a message directly from there in a couple minutes. Yeah, all, all this happens within the span of, of five minutes. Yasuda is released, gets back to the precinct, yeah. and then it's like gets Nolan's from the office and Stifle's office are in the same building. He's probably in the next room. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not Yasuda actually coming to deliver this message. Yeah. But he says, I have a message with me, and he says, send it to Stifle's office. You're only a couple minutes away. Stifle gives Kane a lecture about how America runs on oil and has for their whole lives. The oil companies are the big American teat. There's a page at the door and Stifle lets someone in. A woman delivers the cable to Lieutenant Kane. Kane reads it and then hands it to Stifle. I think this is for you. The chocolates are delicious. Best wishes. Franz Tauber. Stifle deduces that Kane has given the formula to the Swiss, which, according to Lisa, was what they were trying to prevent by killing the Neelys, so now we've come full circle. Mm -hmm. The whole point was to keep this contract between America and the Nazis and not let the Swiss in on it, and now it's a triangle. Stifle suggests that Kane quit his job and spend the rest of his life having fun with his son, and Kane replies, If I didn't have a son who still loved me, I'd blow your fucking brains all over that Venetian blind back there, right here, right now. So Lisa has converted him to the understanding that violence is necessary to resolve these sorts of issues. Kane leaves the office, and rather than be completely devastated, Stifle just flips through a Rolodex and calls Tauber mm -hmm. and says, Hey, so I, I heard the secret's out. You got the formula, so what do you want in exchange for holding on to it until we're all going to start making money with it? And he said... Uh, I'll give you 25% of my anthracite. And he says, how about 30%? He's like, that sounds like a deal to me. <laughs> Which, it, it feels like he's not that bummed about it. It's a minor loss for Stifle. It was worth killing all these people along the way, but it, it's a major gain for Tober, obviously, because he's getting all this anthracite for free, and he gets to turn it into gasoline later. And that's all. That's the end of our story. Um, I would really much rather have this 
film end the way that the George C. Scott movie earlier this year did, where the greedy old man in the office wanders into a house fire and then dies of a heart attack. <laughs> but instead we get this. Outside, Kane and Yasuda are walking along the sidewalk of an overpass in Pasadena, and Yasuda asks Kane if he thinks he's still a target. I'm not an adversary anymore. I'm just another customer. Because it really is all about business to the villains of this story. And that's our forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown moment of the film. Mm -hmm. We end on the sun setting over Pasadena and this bizarre freeze frame and cutting the audio at the same time before the credits scroll. I just feel like fade the audio out. Fade it out before you stop everything, because it's weird <laughs> when it all just pauses. I think yeah. the TV's broken. See, and and I would have done the opposite. I would have still had the freeze frame, but just have all that the audio keep going. Yeah, either one engine, of those is better. Just like engine and traffic noises, just yeah. like yeah. really yeah. hammer, hammer at that home. home. Yeah, <laughs> hammer at home. Why didn't you say it with us? <laughs> Our director here was John G. Avildsen, or was it? Yeah, it was. <laughs> His name's right there. He has an Oscar for directing Rocky. He also directed Karate Kid and sequels for both. He also edited most of his own films, but not Rocky. He didn't He didn't edit Rocky. But the editor did win an Oscar for that also. Hmm. Uh, he even DP'd on a bunch of his own films. Writer-novelist Steve Shagan previously wrote Save the Tiger for director Avildsen. And he also wrote, as we mentioned earlier, Voyage of the Damned, as well as Nightwing and Primal Fear. Cinematographer James Crabe worked on several Avildsen titles, including Rocky and some Karate Kids. He also did China Syndrome and Baltimore Bullet and High Cost of Living earlier this year. And like we said, he won an Oscar for this. Or, sorry, nominated for an Oscar for this. Music was from Bill Conti. Earlier this year, he provided the soundtracks for Gloria and Private Benjamin. He also does For Your Eyes Only, Victory, Carbon Copy, and Neighbors next year. Editor John Carter originally from mars no that's not true uh he uh edited karate kid 3 boomerang sister act 2 and friday i knew that was coming i looked this up and i was like you're gonna make that dumb joke mars joke yeah you're welcome george c scott was barney kane we had him as john russell in the changeling earlier this year he's also Patton and Patton, general turgidson in dr strangelove he's burt gordon in the hustler we'll see him next year in taps He's John Rainbird in Firestarter. Yeah, <laughs> such a weird Indian role. face. Yeah, it's it, it's really bizarre. Uh, he's also Kinderman in Exorcist Three and the voice of McLeach in Rescuers Down Under. Joanna Marlon Brando played Adam Stifle. He was the Godfather in The Godfather. He's Terry Malloy in On the Waterfront. He's Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now. Stanley Kowalski in A Streetcar Named Desire. We won't see him again until '89 for the freshman long gap uh he's also dr moreau in the 96 island of dr moreau yeah. that might be him at his absolute craziest yeah but you know because the freshman the freshman is really nothing it's a, it's an okay movie yeah but because he's just basically doing the godfather as a joke yeah it's a weird choice to come back for mm-hmm. exactly that's after what a saying. decade gap like to 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 come back as a as almost mocking the role yeah marth keller played lisa she was Elsa Opal in Marathon Man. She's Dahlia in Black Sunday and Lillian in Bobby Deerfield. John Gilgood was Dr. Esau. We had him as Nerva in Caligula and Cargom in Elephant Man earlier this year. He's also Hobson in Arthur and Master of Trinity in Chariots of Fire next year. And he's just in that one scene. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, I mean, the same can almost be said for Brando. Well, a lot of, yeah, a lot of the people, I guess, too. 
I mean, I guess we're getting into it afterwards, but that was the only thing that bothered me. It was just like, go here and talk to this person. Go here and talk to this person. Go here and talk to this person. Yeah. Which I think was our same complaint with First Deadly Sin, but that's also just, that's the format of an investigative yeah. uh, detective story, I guess. G.D. Spradlin played Clements. He appears with Brando in Godfather and Apocalypse Now. He's also Reverend Lemon in Ed Wood. I think that's the guy who says to take grave robbing out of the title mm. and replace it with Plan 9. Beatrice Strait played Kay Neely. She's Dr. Lesh in Poltergeist and Louise Schumacher in Network. Richard Lynch played Clayton, a.k.a. Tedesco. We saw him earlier this year as the second cyclist in Ninth Configuration. I don't know if that means... I don't remember people riding bikes in the Ninth Configuration. Oh, no, no, the motorcyclists. Well, I would have called that a biker, not a cyclist, but maybe. <laughs> uh, he's also Cromwell in The Sword and the Sorcerer. He's Mikhail Rostov in Invasion USA and Ankar Moon in Death Sport and Principal Chambers in Rob Zombie's Halloween. Ike Eisenman played Tony. He also played Tony in Escape to Witch Mountain <laughs> and then came back as Sheriff Anthony in Race to Witch Mountain. He also played Preston, which might be nicknamed Tony, I don't know, in Star Trek II Wrath of Khan. Uh, which is funny because that's all about Genesis as well. Right. Here is a character description from Memory Beta, a Star Trek wiki. Peter Preston was a human male who lived and died in the 23rd century. I'm jealous of people who lived and died in the same century because my obituary cannot be so concise. Uh, I'm, it's interesting that was on Memory Beta, not Memory Alpha. But Well, he doesn't seem super important. That's true. Most famous thing he did was not live to 100. <laughs> Calvin Jung played Sergeant Yasuda. He's Min in RoboCop and Detective N in Lethal Weapon 4. Alan North played Nolan. He's Braddock in See No Evil, Hear No Evil. He's Lieutenant Moran in Highlander. He's Mayor Botman in Lean On Me and General Andrew in Glory. David Bird played Oberman. He was Judge McCormick in Tango and Cash. He's Dr. Smorden in Lost Highway. He's Dr. Hugo Broffenbrenner in Hudsucker Proxy. Ferdy Main was Seibold. We just had him as Jack Palance's dad in Hawk the Slayer, <laughs> despite only being three or four years older. Yeah. Uh, he is also leader in Conan the Destroyer. And Mr. Beamish in Yellowbeard. There you go. I, I, I didn't recognize him in Hawk the Slayer, but I immediately recognized him in this <laughs> as Mr. Beamish. Oh, that's Mr. Beamish. It seems like a waste of Ferdy Main now looking back at Hawk the Slayer. Yeah. He was just like, I was just working with Marlon Brando and George C. Scott yesterday, and now you're just <laughs> stabbing me next to a purple pool for like a four-second scene. Weston Gavin played U.S. Army Captain. We just had him in Any Which Way You Can as Beekman's Butler. Craig T. Nelson played Geologist Number 2. This is his last of four appearances this year after Where the Buffalo Roam, Private Benjamin, and Stir Crazy. And Herb Voland played Geologist Number 3. He plays an air controller, Macias, in Airplane earlier this year. Uh, it's also uh, Craig T. Nelson and Beatrice Strait were both in Poltergeist together. That's right. Yeah. Um, and Craig Which T we had in Stir Crazy because him and uh, and the the wife character yeah. are yeah. both in Poltergeist. Yeah, exactly. So like two different movies with Craig T. Nelson where two of his Poltergeist co-stars. Yeah, Joe Beth Williams. I think it's a uh, interesting movie. I do think the plot is a little convoluted. Yeah. I think the clues that lead him from place to place are lazy. 
Um, And I think that all of the interrogations go way too conveniently where a person just lies to him for a bit. And then he says, ah, you liar. And then they go, okay, here's the truth. And they Mm -hmm. just dump the truth in his lap. Yeah. And at the end, if he's actually giving stifle the formula so that he can set it on fire and still earn a huge profit and cost the American people a bunch of money, then it's like, why are you failing on purpose in your mission here? Mm -hmm. I don't understand what you're doing. Yeah. You killed the Neelys and you're not avenging them. Uh, Ultimately, yeah, I mean, in his mind, I I suppose he feels like he... Because at the end, George C. Scott doesn't know that he failed. I mean, Why doesn't he? He has to know because he knows that Stifle succeeded, which means he failed, right? Well he because he he leaves excited and happy that he had given the formula to the swiss expecting the swiss to to hand it out freely i don't know if he expected the swiss to hand it out freely i think he expected the swiss to take advantage of it because he knew that they were trying to keep it away from the swiss specifically mm. see so yeah, yeah i i felt that the whole the whole his i whole... feel like if you have it and you want it to get out there just publish it just put mm. it out there if that's what you're trying to do, if that's your mission. Well, I think that that's what he was hoping that Tauber would do. Right, but you can do it. You don't need Tauber to do it. There's no reason to even reach out to Tauber. Just go on live television and start reading it. <laughs> well, just, just pull a hopscotch and send it to every little publisher yeah. in Europe. Make thousands of copies and leave them all over universities everywhere. But that's not what he did. He gave it to one guy in exchange for chocolate. And it, he didn't even hurt the villain of the movie. I don't get it. Like, I know that we've been over it. I think I get it, but only because I watched it twice and paid very close attention this time. I was bored, and I only watched it once. And, like, yeah, everything you said about the interviews, they were were both – it was both confusing and convenient all at the same time, which is just, like, the worst of every world that you could get in a movie like this. And really, he only needed, like, three clues, and the rest of it was literally just – go to this person's office and then he's just in the office already having the conversation already he he has very a lot of freedom in germany yeah well that's you know that's the eu for you no this is pre-eu <laughs> the pre-eu pre-eu they called it yeah germany was notoriously easy to get around mm-hmm. back then when it, <laughs> when there was a huge wall separating it in two halves yeah um thumbs up for me nope no no thumbs down it's a thumbs down from me as well i i'm giving it a thumbs up i I like the performances even if the script isn't great you're actually giving that a thumbs up yeah you'd say hey so and so go watch this movie my thumbs up means what does your thumbs up mean my thumbs up means i thought it was if if someone said is this movie good or bad i'd be like that's okay that's a thumbs up Okay. That's a thumbs up for me. Well, even with your criteria, it's a thumbs down from me. <laughs> All right. That's I, fair. I would say if that was my criteria, it would be maybe a thumbs up. But I can't really see recommending this movie to anybody. It, and it also reminds me a little bit of Quantum of Solace, where like it's it's not like we're going to make a bomb and we're going to kill a bunch of people. It's like, we're going to charge slightly more for a thing that people use every day, yeah. but not so much that they get angry. And then it's like, okay, and I really don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Why does this matter? Oh man. But yeah. Yeah. So three thumbs down. 
you talk me out of it? <laughs> no. You can do whatever no, you want with your thumb. No, we're doing one thumb up. I'm putting my thumb <laughs> way up there. Um, letterbox. What are we thinking? Jess. It, it it has slowly migrated down the more we talk <laughs> about it. Like it's. I, I mean, here's the thing. I don't get it, and I don't want to get it. I don't ever need to see this movie again. Yeah. It was more annoying than entertaining. So I put it at 120. All right. It is below Stardust Memories and above Melvin and Howard. Stardust Memories is in, is 119. I don't place? like Woody Allen movies. Wow. Leave me alone. All right. <laughs> Richard. Uh, I, too, have this directly above Melvin and Howard. <laughs> uh, but uh, Oh, my God. No, I don't. I don't. Uh, but for me, uh, the formula ends up at 95, uh, below Times Square, but above Melvin and Howard. I have this in 83rd place. It's directly under Somewhere in Time and directly above The Man with Bogart's Face. What? It has... The Man with Bogart's Face was funny, at least. This like, was hilarious. No, like, that <laughs> one was entertaining. This Did you one see was Marlon Brando's silly teeth? It was so funny. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, no, I I feel like I just automatically, if a movie has George C. Scott, it has Marlon Brando, and it has John Gilgood, then you're going to have performances that, for me, are worth watching and entertaining. And even with all the dumb shit in his mouth, I am fascinated with everything Marlon Brando does in anything. Even in this scene when I can't understand what he's saying, it doesn't matter. It's so weird. Because I get sucked into it. Weirding me out. He's, He's like Big Lebowski. He's, he's just talking like this, and he's got all he's stuff got in his mouth, and he sounds like he's just a dentist's office. I, I kind of wonder if uh, that's why Max von Sydow wore the fake teeth for Strange Brew. To make fun of Marlon Brando? <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't put it past him. So we all like this one. Um, I think that's everything for the formula. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show. And if you take the time to leave us a review, this is an hour and 40-minute episode. Are you kidding me? We will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can also support the show through Patreon.com slash VintageVideoPodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Inside Moves, which IMDb describes like so. After a failed suicide attempt leaves him partially crippled, Rory begins spending a lot of time at a neighborhood bar full of interesting misfits. When Jerry the bartender suddenly finds himself playing basketball for the Golden State Warriors, Rory and the rest of the bar regulars hope his success will provide a lift to their sagging spirits, Will Jerry forget his friends? What about his junkie hooker girlfriend and her pimp? We leave you now with a trailer for Inside Moves. Nicky, let's deal the cards out and get the game going, huh? Take one blind poker player. Are you ready? <laughs> now, add a man without hands. Hey, can you use another hand over there? Another hand? Yeah, I can use two. Hey. <laughs> Another who can't walk. A basketball player with one leg shorter than the other. And Rory. Who crippled himself. You got it all backwards. 
First you get crippled, then you try to commit suicide. <laughs> Put them all together, and you have five very special guys who share a dream for one of them. What's the matter with your leg? Hey, look, man, I don't want to play you if you got something wrong. There's nothing wrong with my leg. Come on. How they make that dream come true is the story of Inside Moves. Listen, Jerry, I know you're good enough to play semi-pro ball. I'm going to loan you the money for your operation. Dear Jerry, in case you've forgotten, my name is Rory. How are you? I used to be your best friend, or so you said. Louise... I just wanted to write a friendly letter. Let me see I just, that. I tell them that you're doing a good job and how pretty you are. Thank you. No problem. Do you really think he'll come back? He has to spend some time with his dream. Well, what's your dream? I don't know. I'd like a girlfriend. John Savage is Rory. In a Richard Donner film, Inside Moves. A story of humor. I never thought about it before, but uh, it must be tough being a bigot if you're blind. I know. I had to give it up. <laughs> a story of love. I saw Jerry tonight. So? I told him that you and I were lovers. A story of friendship. Why don't you come by Max's and see the guys? I mean, you know, they love you. It hurts them. You're never around. You never come I by. I will, Rory. To Max's. To Max's. <laughs> is just a bar. I'm talking about my life. It's not just a bar. Carry its family. But most of all, Inside Moves is about the spirit of winning. Hey! It'll make you feel good again. And that ain't bad.